Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Legacy of Queens. It is for Sunday, March 19th, 2023. And tonight we have episode 70. That's right, folks. In the three seasons that we've been on so far, we've now hit the 70th episode of this truly magnificent series that highlights the legacy of Queens, New York, natives, those who work there, those who were born for a short time and then moved away, whatever the case, they're here tonight. And tonight is no exception. We have a legacy of a gentleman who was with us for 78 years of his life, born and raised in New York City, American television personality, radio personality, musician, composer, actor, comedian, and he also was a writer. And in 1954, he achieved national fame as the co-creator and the first host of The Tonight Show, which was the first late-night television talk show. And though he got his start in radio, he's best known for his extensive network television career, he gained National attention as a guest host on Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts after he hosted The Tonight Show. And then he went on to host numerous game and variety shows, including his own show, named after him, I've Got a Secret, and the new name of his show. He was a regular panel member on CBS's What's My Line. And from 1977 until 1981, he wrote produced, and hosted the award-winning public broadcasting show Meeting of Minds, which is a series of historical dramas presented in a talk format. He was a pianist and a prolific composer, and by his own estimate, he wrote more than 8,500 songs, some of which were recorded by numerous leading singers. He won the 64... 1964 Grammy Award for Best Original Jazz Composition for Gravy Waltz, for which he wrote the lyrics. He also wrote more than 50 books, including novels, children's books, and books of opinions, including his final book, Bulgarians at the Gate, Trash TV and Raunch Radio in 2001. In 96, he was presented with the Martin Gardner Lifetime Achievement Award for the Committee from the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He has two stars in the Hollywood Walk of Fame and a Hollywood theater named in his honor. Who are we talking about tonight? We're talking about Stephen Valentine Patrick William Allen, otherwise known as Steve Allen, tonight on The Legacy of Queens. I'm your host, Jason DeCanio. We're back to our Sunday schedules here on the Legacy of Queens. It is March 19th, 2023. And this is episode 70, ready to go to talk about Stephen 
Valentine Patrick William Allen, Steve Allen for short. Here we go. He was born in New York City, son of Billy, Carol Abler, and Isabel Allen, Nee Donahue, a husband and wife vaudeville comedy team. His father died when he was an infant. He was raised on the south side of Chicago, largely by his mother's Irish Catholic family. Milton Burrow called Allen's mother the funniest woman in vaudeville. Allen ran away from home at 16 and described in interviews the ease with which he descended into begging. Allen's first radio job was on station KLY in Phoenix, Arizona, after he left Arizona State Teachers College, now Arizona State University, in Tempe, while a sophomore. And he enlisted in the United States Army during World War II and was trained as an infantryman. He served his enlisted period at Camp Roberts, California. Afterward, he returned to Phoenix before moving back to California. Allen became an announcer for Radio KFAC in Los Angeles, then moved to the Mutual Broadcasting System in 1946, talking the station into airing his five nights a week comedy show, Smile Time, co-starring Wendell Noble. After Allen moved to CBS Radio's KNX in Los Angeles, his music and talk half-hour format gradually changed to include more talk in an hour-long late-night format, boosting his popularity and creating standing-room-only studio audiences. Well, during a show segment, Allen went into the audience with a microphone to ad-lib on the air for the first time. This became a commonplace part of the studio performances for many years. His program attracted a huge local following. And as the host of a 1950 summer replacement show for the popular comedy Our Miss Brooks, he found himself in front of a national audience for the first time. Allen's first television experience came in 1949 when he answered an advertisement for a television announcer for professional wrestling. Knowing nothing about wrestling, he watched some shows to gain insight and discovered that the announcers did not have well-defined names for the wrestling holds. When he got the job, he created names for many of the holds, some of which still are in use. After the first match got underway, Allen began ad-libbing in a comedic style that had audiences outside the arena laughing. An example, Leon gives Smith a full Nelson now, slipping it up from either a half Nelson or an Ozzy Nelson. Now the boys go into a double pretzel bend with variations on a theme by Velaz and Yolanda. <laughs> well, after CBS gave... CBS Radio gave Allen a weekly primetime show. CBS Television believed he could be groomed for national television stardom and gave him his first network show. The Steve Allen Show premiered at 11 a.m. on Christmas Day, 1950, and was later moved to a 30-minute early evening slot. The new show required him to relocate with his family from Los Angeles to New York. It ran until 1952, after which CBS tried several different formats to showcase Allen's talent. He achieved national attention in early January 1951 when he was pressed into last-minute service to guest host the hugely popular Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts when Godfrey was unable to appear. 
He turned one of Godfrey's live Lipton tea and soup commercials upside down, preparing tea and instant soup on camera, then pouring both into Godfrey's iconic ukulele. With the audience, including Godfrey, watching from Miami, laughing uproariously and thoroughly entertained, Allen gained major plaudits, both as a comedian and as a host. Variety magazine editors who had seen the show wrote, one of the most hilarious one-man comedy sequences projected over the TV cameras in many a day. The guy's a natural for the big time. Allen also was a regular on the popular panel television game show, What's My Line, from 1953 to 54, and returned frequently as a panelist until the series ended in 1967. He was a celebrity contestant on June 19, 1966, when the blindfolded panel failed to guess his line, Selling Motorcycles. Allen at the time was co-owner of a Los Angeles dealership selling Honda motorcycles. Those introducing him as a panelist sometimes jokingly called him the son of panelist Fred Allen, but the two men were unrelated. So he also revived and popularized the question, is it bigger than a bread box, while trying to guess the products associated with What's My Line contestants. Leaving CBS, Allen created a late-night New York talk variety television program that debuted in July of 1953 on local station WNBT-TV, now WNBC. The following year, on September 27, 1954, the show went on the full NBC network as The Tonight Show with fellow radio personality Gene Rainburn, who later went on to host hit game shows such as Match Game from 62 to 82 as the original announcer. The show ran from 11.15 p.m. to 1 a.m. on the East Coast. And while today developer Sylvester Pat Weaver often is credited as the Tonight Show creator, Steve Allen often pointed out that he had created it earlier as a local New York show. Allen told his nationwide audience that first evening, This is tonight, and I can't think of too much to tell you about it except I want to give you the bad news first. This program is going to go on forever. You think you're tired now? Wait until you see 1 o'clock roll around. It was as host of The Tonight Show that Allen pioneered the man-on-the-street comedic interviews and audience participation comedy breaks that went on to become staples of late-night TV. Then in June of 1956, NBC offered Allen a new primetime Sunday night variety hour called The Steve Allen Show. NBC's goal was to dethrone CBS top-rated The Ed Sullivan Show. Well, the show included a typical run of star performers, including early television appearances by rock and roll pioneers Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Fats Domino. Many popular television and film personalities were guest stars, including Bob Hope, Kim Novak, Errol Flynn, Abbott and Costello, Esther Williams, Jerry Lewis, Martha Ray, The Three Stooges, and a host of others. The show's regulars were Tom Poston, Louis Nye, Bill Dana, Don Knotts, Pat Harrington Jr., Dayton Allen, and Gabriel Dell. All except film veteran Dell, who had appeared in the Bowery Boys movies, 
also known as the Dead End Kids and the East Side Kids, were relatively obscure performers prior to their stints with Allen and went on to stardom. The comedians in Allen's gang often were seen in his man-in-the-street interviews about some topical subject. Poston would appear as a dullard who could not remember his own name. Nye's character was an effetet, or an eftet advertising executive named Gordon Hathaway, known for greeting the host with, Hi-ho, Steve Arino. Dana played amiable Latino Jose Jimenez. Knotts was an exceedingly jittery man who, when asked if he was nervous, invariably replied with an alarmed, No. Harrington was the Italian immigrant and former golf pro Guido Panzini. Dayton Allen, who had gotten his start playing various characters on the children's television series Howdy Doody, played Wild Eye Zanies, answering any given question with the question, Why not? Dell usually played straight men in sketches, usually policemen, newsmen, dramatic actors, etc., and occasionally played the character Boris Nadell, a Bella Lugosi Dracula lookalike. Other recurring routines included Crazy Shots, also known as Wild Pictures, a series of sight gags accompanied by Alan on piano, Alan inviting audience members to select three musical notes at random, and then composing a song based on the notes, a satire on radio's long-running The Answer Man, and a precursor to Johnny Carson's Karnak, The Magnificent, the sample answer, et tu brut. Alan's reply, how many pizzas did you eat, Caesar? <laughs> and dramatic comedy readings of real letters to the editor from New York City newspapers. Alan's show also had one of the longest unscripted crack-ups on live television when Alan began laughing hysterically during Big Bill Allen's sports roundup. Alan, known for his infectious, high-pitched, cackling laugh, laughed uncontrollably for over a minute with the audience laughing along because, as he later explained, he caught sight of his unkempt hair on an off-camera monitor. He kept brushing his hair and changing hats to hide the messy hair, and the more he tried to correct his appearance, the messier and funnier it got. Allen helped the then-new Polaroid camera become popular by demonstrating its instant picture capabilities during live commercials and amassed a huge financial windfall for his work because he had opted to be paid for it in Polaroid Corporation stock. Allen remained host of Tonight for three nights a week. Monday and Tuesday nights were taken up by guest hosts for most of the summer of 56, then by Ernie Kovacs through January until early 1957 when he left the show to devote his attention to the Sunday night program. It was his and NBC's hope that, Steve, that the Steve Allen show could defeat Ed Sullivan in the ratings. Nevertheless, Maverick often bested both in audience size. In September of 1959, Allen relocated to Los Angeles and left Sunday Night Television. The 1959-60 season originated from NBC Color City in Burbank as the Steve Allen Plymouth Show on Monday nights. Back in Los Angeles, he continued to write songs, hosted other variety shows, and wrote books and articles about comedy. After being canceled by NBC in 1960, the show returned in the fall of 1961 on ABC. 
Nye, Poston, Harrington Dell, and Dayton Allen returned. New cast members were Joey Foreman, Buck Henry, the Smothers Brothers, Tim Conway, and Allen's wife, Jane Meadows. The new version was canceled after 14 episodes. From 1962 to 1964, Allen recreated The Tonight Show on a new late-night show, The Steve Allen Show, which was syndicated by Westinghouse TV. The five-nights-a-week taped show was broadcast from an old vaudeville theater at 1228 North Vine Street in Hollywood that was renamed the Steve Allen Playhouse. The show was marked by the same wild, unpredictable stunts and comedy skits that often extended across the side street to an all-night food outlet known as the Hollywood Ranch Market, where Allen had a hidden camera spying on unsuspected shoppers. On one show, he had an elephant race down the side street, much to the annoyance of the occupants of the neighboring houses. On this show, he originated the term Little Black Things, in reference to anything regarding food, and the term Larger Than Steve Allen's Bread Box, in reference to any item under discussion. He also presented Southern California eccentrics, including health food advocate Gypsy Boots, quirky physics professor Dr. Julius Sumner Miller, wacko comic professor Erwin Corey, and an early musical performance by Frank Zappa. Well, during one episode, Allen placed a telephone call to the home of Johnny Carson, posing as a rating company interviewer, asking Carson if the television was on and what program he was watching. Carson did not immediately realize that the caller was Allen, a rarity is an exchange between Alan and Carson about Carson's guests permitting him to plug his own show on a competing network. One notable program, which Westinghouse refused to distribute, featured Lenny Bruce during the time the comic repeatedly was being arrested on obscenity charges. Footage from this program was first telecast in 1998 in a Bruce documentary aired on HBO, Regis Philbin briefly took over hosting the Westinghouse show in 1964. The show also featured many jazz songs played by Allen and members of the show's band, the Don, the Don Trenner Orchestra, which included such virtuoso musicians as guitarist Herb Ellis and flamboyantly comedic hipster trombonist Frank Rosalino, whom Alan credited with the originating the Hi-Yo chant, later popularized by Ed McMahon. And while the show was not an overwhelming success in its day, David Letterman, Steve Martin, Harry Shear, Robin Williams, and a number of other prominent comedians have cited Alan's Westinghouse show, which they watched as teenagers, as being highly influential on their own comedic visions. Allen later produced a second-half-hour show for Westinghouse titled Jazz Scene USA, which featured West Coast jazz musicians such as Rosalino, Stan Kenton, and Teddy Edwards. The short-lived show was hosted by Oscar Brown Jr. He hosted a number of television programs until the 1980s, including the new Steve Allen show in 1961 and the game show I've Got a Secret, replacing original host Gary Moore in 1967. I mean, in 64. Then in the summer of 67, he brought most of the regulars from over the years back with the Steve Allen Comedy Hour, featuring the television debuts of Rob Reiner, Richard Dreyfuss, and John Biner, 
and featuring Ruth Buzzy, who would become famous soon after, on the comedy ensemble show Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. In 1968-71, Steve returned to, to syndicated nightly variety talk with the same wacky stunts that would influence David Letterman in later years, including becoming a human hood ornament, jumping into vats of oatmeal and cottage cheese, and being slathered with dog food before allowing dogs backstage to feast on the food. During the run of this series... Steve also introduced Albert Brooks and Steve Martin to national audiences for the first time. Alan returned to guest host The Tonight Show for a single 1971 episode and then became a semi-occasional guest host, total of 15 episodes, from 1973 to 77. After another long layoff, he guest hosted two episodes in 1982, the last time he would host The Tonight Show. A syndicated version of I Got a Secret, hosted by Alan and featuring panelists Pat Carroll and Richard Dawson, was taped in Hollywood and aired during the 72-73 to season. And in 77, he produced Steve Allen's Laughback, a syndicated series combining vintage Allen film clips with new talk show material reuniting his 1950s television gang. From 1986 through 88, he hosted a daily three-hour radio comedy show heard nationally on NBC that featured sketches and America's better-known comedians as regular guests. His co-host was radio personality Mark Simone, and they were joined frequently by com- comedy-, comedy writers Larry Gelbart, later of MASH writing fame, Herb Sargent, perhaps later on, best known for his writing work on Saturday Night Live, and Bob Einstein, brother of Albert Brooks and creator and portrayer of the Faw stuntman character Super Dave Osborne. From 1984 to 86, he created and hosted Steve Allen's Music Room, which aired on the newly formed Disney Channel. This was a talk show with jazz vibraphonist Terry Gibbs leading a studio band with the top Los Angeles musicians to include Conte Candoli, Pete Candoli, Carl Fontana, Med Flory, Plus Johnson, Alan Broadbent, and drummer Frankie Cap. 27-year-old Bill Maher was the announcer and sidekick, and the show featured musicians and entertainers, including Melba Moore, Joe Williams, Paul Williams, Bert Bacharach, Anthony Newley, Rosemary Clooney, Lou Rawls, Dizzy Gillespie, Sarah Vaughn, and Henry Mancini. In 1997, Alan was a guest on the Space Ghost Coast to Coast episode Boat Show. From 1977 till 1981, Alan wrote, produced, and hosted the award-winning show Meeting of Minds, which aired on the public broadcasting service. The series brought together the likes of Socrates, Marie Antoinette, Thomas Paine, Sir Thomas More, Attila the Hun, Karl Marx, Emily Dickinson, Charles Darwin, and Galileo Galilei, all of whom were acting as if brought back from the past in a roundtable discussion. Their dialogue and arguments covered issues such as racism, women's rights, crime and punishment, slavery, and religious tolerance. Associated Press television com- col- columnist Peter Boyer called it the best talk show on television created by the person who, 
invented the television talk show and added, the amazing thing about this show is that it actually comes off as a talk show with a talk show's rhythm and pace. A truly conversational script is a tough trick to turn. Alan turns it with apparent ease. Alan was a philosophy fanatic and avid reader of classic literature and history. He wrote the scripts based on the actual writings and actions of the guests, and as a host, would lead the conversations to different subjects. He described the show as drama disguised as a talk show, and most of the female roles were acted by Alan's wife, the actress Jane Meadows. Alan first had the concept for the show in 1959, but it took almost 20 years to make it become reality. He initially produced a version in 1971 that aired locally in Los Angeles and earned three local Emmy Awards. But although it received critical acclaim from Hollywood critics, the distributor chose not to broadcast it nationally, feeling it would not draw a large enough audience. And even PBS backed off on showing it. And many in the television industry felt the series was too thoughtful for the American public. And then he produced the first show at his own expense, which resulted in attracting major backers. It eventually aired nationally beginning in 1977. The series, consisting of six hour-long episodes per season, became enormously popular and Allen received a personal Peabody Award in 1977 for creating and hosting a truly original show. The award also recognized Meadows for her various portrayals. In 1981, the show won an Emmy for Outstanding Informational Series, and Allen's writing was Emmy-nominated. It was the show Allen wanted to be remembered for because he believed the issues and characters were timeless and would survive long after his death. Well, according to his own estimate, Alan was a prolific composer who wrote more than 8,500 songs, and although only a small fraction of them were ever recorded, in one famous stunt, he made a bet with singer-songwriter Frankie Lane that he could write 50 songs a day for a week. Composing on public display in the window of Wallach's Music City, a Hollywood music store, Steve Allen met the quota and won $1,000 from Lane. One of the songs, Let's Go to Church Next Sunday Morning, became a chart hit for the duo of Jimmy Wakely and Margaret Whiting, hitting number 13 pop and number 2 country in 1950. Steve Allen began his recording career in 1951 with the album Steve Allen at the Piano for Columbia Records. He then signed with Decca, recording for their subsidiaries, Brunswick Records and then Coral Records. He would release a mixture of novelty singles, jazz recordings, and straight pop numbers for Decca throughout the 1950s before switching to Dot Records in the 1960s. Allen's best-known song, This Could Be the Start of Something, dates from 1954. And though it was never a hit, the song was recorded by numerous artists, including Count Basie, Tony Bennett, Bobby Darin, Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Aretha Franklin, Lionel Hampton, Claire Martin, and Oscar Peterson. Allen used it as the theme song of The Tonight Show in the 56-57 season and as the theme song to many of his later television projects. He wrote the lyrics for the standard 
theme from Picnic, from the film Picnic in 1955. The song was a number 13 U.S. hit in a vocal version for the McGuire sisters in 1956. The song, however, is chiefly remembered as an instrumental, often performed in a medley with Moon Glow, a popular song from 1933. Two instrumental versions charted in the U.S. Top 5 in 1956, including a number one hit version by Morris Stoloff. Because he did not write the music, Allen was not credited as a songwriter on the instrumental versions. Then in 1957, Jerry Vale had a minor hit, number 52, with the Allen composition Pretend You Don't See Her. The song was later covered by Bobby V, who would also chart it with, with it, number 97 in 65, and Vale's recording would later be heard in the 1990 gangster film Goodfellas. Gravy Waltz was composed and originally performed by Ray Brown as an instrumental in the early 60s. Alan later set words to it, and the collaboration won the 1964 Grammy Award for Best Original Jazz Composition. Issued as an instrumental single in 1963, it hit number 64 on the U.S. Billboard charts. Though the single version was credited to Steve Allen with Don Trenner and his orchestra, Allen did not play on it. And as well, though, Allen was credited as co-songwriter for his lyrics. The hit single version was strictly an instrumental performance. Similarly, sometime in the 1950s, Allen set words to South Rampart Street Parade, a 1938 instrumental hit for Bob Crosby, written by Bob Haggart and Ray Bouchick. And though the song is still best known as an instrumental, Allen's later lyrics occasionally are performed. In the realm of theater, Allen wrote the music and lyrics for the Broadway musical Sophie, which was based on the early career of the woman long billed as the last of the Red Hot Mamas entertainer Sophie Tucker. The book for the show was by Philip Prunow. Libby Stagger and Art Lund were featured in the leading roles. Sophie opened at the Winter Garden Theater in New York after tryouts in three other cities on April 15, 1963, to mostly unfavorable critical notices. It closed five days later on April 20th after just eight performances, as Ken Mandelbaum noted in his 1991 book, Nonsense Carrie. The show received consistently negative reviews in Columbus, Detroit, Philadelphia, and New York, and its problems were obvious. A cliche-written standard showbiz biobook and an ordinary score. The score went unrecorded by the cast, although several months later, Judy Garland sang three songs from Sophie on her CBS television series. Though Mandelbaum doesn't mention it, Alan was a guest on the episode of The Judy Garland Show in which he featured Alan's songs from Sophie. Later, a compiled recording of Sophie was released with vocals by Alan, Libby Steger, Garland, and others. Alan's other produced musical was the 1969 London show Bell Star, which starred Betty Grable as the American West character. He wrote the music and was one of three credited lyricists. Bell Star also received poor reviews in both its Glasgow tryout and in its London run and closed after 12 performances. Like Sophie, 
the score went unrecorded by the cast. No compiled recording of the score has been made. Allen also composed the score to Paul Mantee's James Bond's inspired film, A Man Called Dagger, in 67, with the score orchestrated by Ronald Stein. By the 70s, Allen was no longer actively recording his music. He continued to compose material, however, and in 1985, he wrote 19 songs for Irwin Allen's television miniseries, Alice in Wonderland. The series starred his wife, Jane Meadows, as the Queen of Hearts, among countless other celebrities. After a long layoff from recording, in 1992, he issued the instrumental album, Steve Allen Plays Jazz Tonight, which included interpretations of jazz classics as well as a handful of new original compositions. Allen was an occasional actor, and he wrote and starred in his first film, the Max Senate comedy compilation Down Memory Lane in 1949. His most famous film appearance was in 1956's The Benny Goodman Story in the title role. The film, while an average biopic of its day, was hailed for its music featuring many alumni of the Goodman Band. Allen later recalled his one contribution to the film's music used in the early scenes. The accomplished Benny Goodman no longer could produce the sound of a clarinet beginner, and that was the only sound Allen was able to produce on a clarinet. In 1960, he appeared as the character Dr. Ellison in the episode Play Acting on CBS's anthology series The DuPont Show with June Allison, Though his Steve, though his the Steve Allen show had been in competition with the program the preceding season, a similar Canadian television series called Witness to Yesterday, created by Arthur Veronica, uh, Veronica aired three years after Allen's local Emmy Award-winning program. He appeared on the 1976 episode of Witness to Yesterday as composer pianist George Gershwin. During the 80s, Allen and Jane Meadows, his second wife, made three appearances on the television drama series St. Elsewhere. They played the estranged birth parents of the character, Dr. Victor Ehrlich, who had given him up for adoption. And in 1998, Allen and Meadows guest starred in an episode of Homicide Life on the Street. Steve Allen did work, voice work in two episodes of The Simpsons in the 90s, appearing once as the electronically altered voice of Bart Simpson in Season 3's Separate Vocations, and as himself in Season 6's Round Springfield. Allen was a comedy, comedy writer and author of more than 50 books, including several volumes of autobiography, children's books, a series of mystery novels, and numerous volumes of essays and opinions. Twenty of his books were concerned with his views about religion, and among his better-known non-fiction works are Dumpth, which is a commentary on the American educational system, and Steve Allen on the Bible, Religion and Morality. Allen was ostensibly authored a long-running series of mystery novels in the 80s and 90s, starring himself and Meadows as amateur sleuths. They were they later revealed to have been ghost-written by Walter J. Sheldon 
and later by Robert Westbrook. Despite his lifelong reputation for political liberalism, morally, Allen was highly critical of vulgarity on both television and radio, and particularly strident in criticizing Howard Stern and other shock jocks. At the time of his death, he was completing a book on the subject called Vulgarians at the Gate about what he saw as the rising tide of smut on television. Allen, a free thinker and humanist, became an outspoken critic of organized religion and an active member of the scientific skepticism movement. He worked to promote critical thinking with such humanist and skeptical organizations as the Council for Media Integrity, a group that debunked pseudoscientific claims, and the California-based group, the Skeptics Society. He wrote many pieces for their publication, Skeptic, on such, such topics as the Church of Scientology, Genius, and the passing of science fiction giant Isaac Asimov. Working with Paul Kurtz, published publisher of Prometheus Books, Allen published 15 books, including Dumpth, The Lost Art of Thinking with 101 Ways to Reason Better and Improve Your Mind, which was reissued in 98. He produced Gullible's Travels, an audio tape with original music and script that was read and sung by him and his wife in order to introduce youngsters to the brain and its proper use. Wishing to counter the influence of the American Christian right, Allen wrote both a 1990 critique of the Bible, Steve Allen on the Bible, Religion, and Morality, as well as a sequel. A sample passage from the book that illustrated his view of the Judeo-Christian God reads, The proposition that the entire human race, consisting of enormous hordes of humanity, would be placed seriously in danger of a fiery eternity, characterized by unspeakable torments, purely because a man disobeyed a deity by eating a piece of fruit offered him by his wife, is inherently incredible. In 2011, Steve Allen was selected for inclusion in the Committee for Skeptical Inquiries' Pantheon of Skeptics. And while Allen often was critical of rock and roll music, he often booked rock and roll acts on his television program, The Steve Allen Show. It featured such acts as Fats Domino, Jerry Lee Lewis, Louis Jordan, and the Timpani Five, the Treniers, and the Collins Kids. Allen famously scooped Ed Sullivan by being one of the first to present Elvis Presley on network television after Presley had appeared on the Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey stage show and Milton Berle shows. And while Presley was an exceedingly controversial act at the time, Allen found a way to satisfy the Puritans. He assured viewers that he would not allow Presley to do anything that will offend anyone. NBC announced that a revamped, purified, and somewhat abridged Presley had agreed to sing while standing reasonably still, dressed in black tie. Allen had Elvis wear a top hat and tuxedo with tails while singing Hound Dog to the actual hound who was also dressed the same. Allen also appeared on the shows of other entertainers, even the mildly rock and roll program 
the Pat Boone Chevy showroom on ABC. In the late 70s and early 80s, he recorded a solo piano album for the Piano Quarter Contemporary Artist Series, joining such other popular pianists of the day as Liberace, Floyd Kramer, Teddy Wilson, Roger Williams, and Johnny Guarini. His solo album was popular. In 86, he was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. He was on the advisory board of the Los Angeles Student Film Institute. He appeared in a public service announcement advocating for new eyes for the needy in the 1990s. Also, he narrated the unreal story of professional wrestling, a documentary of professional wrestling, from its origins to 1998. Well, Alan and Dorothy Goodman married in 1943. They had three children, Stephen Jr., Brian, and David. That marriage ended in 52. And then he married Jane Meadows. They had one son, Bill Allen, named for Steve's father. They were married in Waterford, Connecticut, July 31st, 1954. Remained married until his death in 2000. He was a Democrat. She was a Republican. In the late, later 1950s, author and philosopher Gerald, Harrell, Gerald Hurd worked with psychiatrist Sidney Cohen to introduce intelligent, adventurous people to LSD, and Steve Allen was one of these. Allen endorsed Lyndon B. Johnson in the 64 United States presidential election. And although, although Allen was brought up Roman Catholic, he later became a secular humanist and humanist laureate for the Academy of Humanism, a member of CSI COP or, and the Council for Secular Humanism. He received the Rose Elizabeth Byrd Commitment to Justice Award from Death Penalty Focused in 1998. He was a student and supporter of General Semantics, recommending it in Dump and giving the Alfred Korzebeski Memorial Lecture in 1992. And in spite of his liberal position on free speech, he later, his later concerns about the lewdness he had heard on radio and television, particularly the programs of Howard Stern, caused him to make proposals restricting the content of programs, allying himself with the Parents' Television Council, his full-page ad on the subject appeared in newspapers just before his unexpected death. Allen, who last guest-hosted the, the, the Tonight Show in 1982, made his last appearance on it on September 27, 1994, for the show's 40th anniversary broadcast. Jay Leno was effusive in his praise and actually knelt and kissed Allen's ring. Then on October 30th of 2000, Allen was involved in a minor traffic crash while traveling to visit his youngest son at home in Los Angeles. Another driver struck the side of Allen's car while backing out of a driveway, causing Allen to suffer a ruptured blood vessel, among other injuries, though he apparently did not realize he was seriously hurt. After Allen arrived at his son's home, he took a nap, and died in his sleep. At first, it was believed that he had a heart attack. However, Allen's autopsy revealed that he actually died from hemopericardium caused by injuries sustained in the crash. And though the condition was partially caused by 
atherosclerosis, the death was ruled accidental. According to Jane Meadows, typical of Steve, who was the dearest, sweetest man, he was hit by a man, backing into him, breaking all of his ribs, that pierced his heart. And when he got out of the car, he said to the man, what some people will do to get my autograph. He is buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Hollywood Hills, Los Angeles. He has two stars of the Hollywood Walk of Fame, a television star at 1720 in Vine Street, and a radio star at 1537 Vine Street. Jane Meadows was buried next to Alan following her death in 2015. And there you have it, folks. The great legacy of the man who was the first host of The Tonight Show, Stephen Valentine Patrick William Allen. What a legacy. We will miss you very much. Thank you for all you have done to bring television to a new purpose some 50, 60 years later. Thank you. Next week on our program, we'll look at another one. And this time, well, it's going to be the man who was an American actor and comedian, his career, as an entertainer spanned over 80 years, first in silent films, and then on stage as a child actor, then in radio, movies, and television, as the host of NBC's Texaco Star Theater, and he was the first major American television star and was known to millions of viewers as Uncle Milty and Mr. Television during the first golden age of television. He was honored with two stars in the Hollywood Walk of Fame for his work both in radio and TV. Born in New York City, in Harlem, in the neighborhood of Manhattan, we lost him in 2002 at the age of 93. We'll look at Milton Berle, born Mendel Berlinger. Jewish all the way. That's next week on The Legacy of Queens, episode 71. I'm Jason Icanio, thanking you for your continued support of this great show, of this great series, and for 70 great episodes. I know this was a long one. We thank you for your time and your patience and your attention span as we bring you the real in-depth look at all of our legacy people, whether they have passed or they're still living today. Whatever you choose to do, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, the Legacy of New York. That is where all of these back episodes, including this one, later on will be uploaded to the YouTube channel where we have over 2,200 views. We thank you for the, 20, for the uh, 53 subscribers that have subscribed so far, and we hope that you'll become number 54. From all of us here on YouTube and Spotify, I'm Jason Ikenio. Have yourself a great night, and remember, be honest, be real, and keep it simple, stupid. Kiss. We'll see you next week. Bye for now.